Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29, the same passage that Evan read for us. I'm not going to read it for us again, but we're marching our way through the Old Testament. We're getting a survey of the story of God's salvation as is told to us in the first two-thirds of our Bibles, which we call the Old Testament. Now, here's an experience that I bet that any of us who have earnestly tried to read this book, especially if we've tried to read it cover to cover, we've done a Bible reading plan, we have had this experience, and that is we wake up early in the morning, we brew a cup of coffee, we find our favorite seat, we sit down with this book that has promised us that it will give us everything we need for life and godliness, and then we run into a passage like Genesis chapter 29, on who begat who, or a chapter on how to build a tabernacle, or some instructions on what to do with a house that's had somebody who had leprosy living in it, and that's all the time we have. We close the book, we get up, we go to our work, and we think, what in the world does this book have to do with me? What does this have to do with my daily life and what I'm experiencing today? All of us have had that experience. That's okay to have that experience. Um, I've had that experience many, many times. Humor me. I hope this series will begin to answer some of that, but humor me as I parallel that to a different story. You've got a kid who is in elementary school, and he has to take American history, and he's sitting in a classroom, and he's hearing the teacher just drone on and on about taxation without representation, and about this guy he'll never meet named Paul Revere, and about this supposed battle that happened in Yorktown, and he raises his hand and he says, teacher, what on earth does any of this have to do with me? Well, if I was that teacher, this is what I would say, and I don't even know if you can say this legally today, but I would say, boy, The world doesn't revolve around you. I'm not here to give you some timeless truth nugget that you can immediately take to the playground and use today in your little world. I'm trying to draw you out of this story that plays in your mind every day that features you and into this story that is so much bigger and grander and more glorious than yourself. So shut up and listen about the Boston Tea Party. I mean, we got to get through this stuff. Well, that could be said to us today. When we sit with our Bibles, even in the moments that we think, man, what does this have to do with me? Hang on, friend. You're being discipled in this crucible. You're, You're being drawn out of a story that features you and your kingdom and into a story that features God and his kingdom. And just because you can't connect your 7 a.m. reading to your 8 a.m. meeting doesn't mean it's not bending you into this grand and glorious purpose to make you hunger and thirst for his kingdom and his righteousness. That's why we're reading the Old Testament, even tricky parts like Genesis chapter 29. So I'm going to pray for us that God would do just that in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, this would be so simple and it would be such a supernatural thing 
if you would just pull us kicking and screaming out of our own stories and into your story. I pray that even as we think of ourselves, believer and unbeliever alike, we would first think of ourselves in reference to you and what you're doing in the world. That would be a miracle. That could save us. Do that, I pray and I plead in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, last week we were in Genesis chapter 12, which I think is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise to him that surprises us because he says to him, not Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great religion, or Abraham through you and Sarah, I'm going to bear the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. God's plan of salvation is coming through a nation. The story of the Old Testament is God choosing Israel to show his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and to fulfill his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, ultimately through his son Jesus. That's a huge shift. If you came to your Old Testament just waiting for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem or you're waiting for the details of a new Christian religion, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But if you join what God is doing and you listen for what he's displaying, it will change the way we read our Bibles. But as soon as we get that shift, as soon as we say, okay, God, we'll do this your way and not my way. We'll do the nation and not the religion. No sooner does that happen than we are in for another surprise. And this surprise really came to me in a class I had in undergrad called Progress of Redemption. So you hear that a nation is coming through Abraham, and I can't help but immediately starting to think of what we need. I'm just a planner through and through. I like to break down a mission into tasks. I keep a bullet journal. I like to check things off. So when I hear that something needs to be done, I'm ready to whip out a day planner and some post-it notes and say, okay, you want to make a nation? This is what we're going to need. First, we're going to need some people. We need a lot of people that are going to make up this nation. And then we need a land. We need a place that we're going to put these people. And then we need a king. If you're going to have a nation, you need a king. And he's got to base the entire justice off of the law. So we're going to need a law. And we're going to need God's blessing. And if we, we get all these things, then we can get this nation. Right now, all we have is Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham is 75 years old. And God, if you want to make a nation, we better get this thing started right away because we got a lot to do. Here's the surprise that rocks my idol of efficiency. We're not going to do this my way. We're going to do this God's way. And God grows things slowly And God grows things through sinners. I don't like that way. But God didn't ask me. God's going to do it His way. And He's going to do it slow. And He's going to do it with sinners. Have you ever had the experience in your life where you have wondered, what is taking God so long? What is taking Him so long? I mean, I see the problem. And I see a ready solution. And I know that God has all power, all might, all authority. 
What is taking him so long to bring the solution to bear? If you've experienced that, you will find a home in the Psalms. The Psalms teach us great and beautiful prayers we can teach our kids. Like, God, wake up. God, listen to me. God, where are you and what's taking you so long? Apparently, saints everywhere for all time can agree that God moves way more slowly than our liking. We all agree on that. Uh, There's a group of us that meets for prayer before every Sunday worship. We don't just presume miracles are going to happen here. We pray that God will do them. And so three very important elders were sitting and praying, and we were interrupted by a four-year-old, which was fantastic. And she burst in the room and told us that her younger brother was sick. So we stopped everything, and we said, let's pray for the younger brother. So we bow our heads and close our eyes and God, I pray for this boy. I pray you would heal him. I pray that he would feel better. I pray that he would know that you're with him. In Jesus' name, amen. And we all lifted our heads and opened our eyes. And and the four-year-old girl thinks for a minute. And then she says, nah, he's still sick. (laughs) I said, you don't know that. You didn't ask him. God might have healed him just now. But that's how we all pray. We ask for something and we say, nah, God didn't answer that. Uh, it's, it's the same as it was just before I prayed. We all have this experience that God does not move quick enough to our liking. Here's what happens after God visits Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is 75 years old and God tells him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. In fact, in the buildup of this promise, he changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means a father of a multitude. So nobody would fault the couple, Abraham and Sarah, if they got really, really excited that they were barren and now they're going to have so many kids. It's going to be like God is building a nation through them. And then they hurry up and wait. And Abraham turns 76, 77, 80. He turns 85. He turns 86. It's over a decade after God told him this. And at that point at 86, him and Sarah get together and they say, you know, maybe we misheard God. Maybe God said he was going to do it through us, but he meant he was going to do it through somebody else. So they kind of take matters into their own hands, and it's an awkward story of Abraham then getting together with Hagar and having a son through her, which is Ishmael. And even though you know that's wrong, you think at least something's happening now, like at least we have a kid and we're going to start building this nation together. And then God who's actually been awfully quiet this entire time, finds it within himself to appear and say, it's not Ishmael. You got to keep waiting. So Abraham turns 87, and then he turns 90, and then he turns 95, and then he turns 99, and then he's 99 and a half, and then he's 99 and three quarters, And then Abraham turns a hundred years old. When Abraham's a hundred, his wife Sarai is a spry 90. 
And both Romans and the book of Hebrews, when they look back on this time and they describe Abraham at a hundred, both of them say, independent of each other, Abraham was, quote, as good as dead. That's how they described 100-year-old Abraham. But God appears to Abraham at a hundred years old, which if you're counting is a full quarter of a century after Genesis chapter 12, after he first promised this nation. It's been 25 years of Abraham and Sarah doubting what God was going to do, wondering how God was going to do it, laughing at the audacity of God's promise, trying to finagle God's work for him, first by lying to a man named Abimelech, and then by sleeping with Hagar. And after all of that, God opens Sarah's womb, and she has a child, and his name is Isaac. 25 years of waiting, 25 years of wondering and doubting and resisting and the promised nation of Israel has just shrunk. It was two people, Abraham and Sarah, and now they just have one son, Isaac, and we have a nation of one. God grows things slowly And God grows things through sinners. You got one son. His name is Isaac. When he turns 40, he meets his wife, Rebecca. They get married, and lo and behold, Rebecca, like her mother-in-law, is also barren, which means we are in for more waiting. God performs a miracle. He opens her womb. She finds that she has twins. She's going to name them Jacob and Esau. And we start to get excited because we've been waiting this long. And now all of a sudden, a couple is going to have two kids, which gets us on the way to this nation that's going to be made. But then God appears again and he says, just like I chose Isaac over Ishmael, now I'm going to choose Jacob over Esau. And once again, we're back to a nation of one. It's just Jacob. Now, this is as good a time as any to tell you something about Jacob. Morally speaking, Jacob is a huge disappointment. He's a liar. He's a trickster. He fools his brother Esau twice. There's this excruciating scene where he lies to his dad. His dad is blind and can't see him. And he says he's Esau and and swears before God that he is and lies to his dad to steal his brother's Esau's blessing. And and if you were thinking by this point that God was going to build his kingdom on the back of sinless saints, you've got another thought coming because he uses sinners. God uses tricksters and liars and lusters and he uses hypocritical pastors and he uses pharisaical church members and he delights to use people who are crooked in their personal and corporate lives together as his people so that nobody reading this story is going to walk away and say, wow, look at Jacob. I mean, what a guy. 
Wow, look at Columbia Presbyterian Church. I mean, what a great group of people. Nobody is going to say that. They're going to see God's hand in his kingdom, and they're going to say, wow, look at God. Look at his glory. Look at his majesty. I know that person. I, I know that family. I know that church. I've spent time with them. If anything good comes out of them, it has got to be something supernatural. Wow. Look at what God is doing through the person of Jacob. Jacob becomes an old man himself. He turns 84, which means that's a lot more waiting. And then he marries a pair of sisters, which I highly discourage. It doesn't go well for Jacob. It won't go well for you. But actually, Jacob is tricked into doing it, which is ironic because Jacob is a liar and a sham and a trickster. And then he meets, meets his match and his uncle, who is also a liar and a trickster. And Laban tri- tricks Jacob into marrying his older daughter Leah instead of his younger daughter Rachel. And so all of a sudden, Jacob finds himself working for 14 years so that he can marry both. Now, Jacob had really wanted Rachel. She's the younger daughter, and the Bible says that she's beautiful. But about Leah, it says, just quote, her eyes were weak. That's what, how Genesis describes her. And we, we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know if that's a euphemism for um, she was unattractive or she had some special need. But, but that's why when we actually get up to our passage that Evan read for us in chapter 29, verse 31, it opens by saying, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Welcome into the households of the forefather of our faith. Jacob despises his wife Leah in favor of his wife Rachel. And and so God does what God does best. And that is in spite of Jacob... And in spite of this dysfunctional household, he just goes on building his kingdom through those who are overlooked and unwanted and marginalized and the least of these. And the kingdom action is happening with Leah and not with Rachel. He opens Leah's womb and now things happen. We see four sons that are born right in a row And even as Leah is having these sons, you watch this conversion that happens within her. It's sad, but it's hopeful. Because when she has her first son, she thinks it's going to earn her husband's affection. And by the time she has her fourth son and she realizes that's not happening, she begins to depend on God. Verse 32, she has Reuben and she says, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. He doesn't. And so she has Simeon, verse 33. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. By the time Levi is born in verse 34, she says, not that my husband will love me. Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. But then by the time she has Judah in verse 34, she says, you know what? I'm done running after the affection I'll never get from my husband. This time, 
I will praise the Lord. Between Leah and Rachel and their servants, Jacob fathers 12 sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin, and one daughter named Dinah. In Genesis chapter 32, God visits this trickster, the sham Jacob, and he gives him a new name, and he calls him Israel. And these 12 sons become the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of what will be that future nation of Israel. The promise for a nation is finally, finally underway. We've just experienced hundreds of years of waiting. It's hard to read the book of Genesis, much less if you had to live the book of Genesis. And we've met some less than perfect people. It's being underscored in our minds just by the discipline of walking with our forefathers that God grows things slowly and God grows things through sinners. If you have ever asked, God, where are you? Or God, why me? You're going to find a home in this story. God is going to take his time and he's going to use the unlikeliest of people. And we can come with him humbly and in submission and with faith or we can come kicking and screaming the whole way. But one thing I promise you, we're going to do this God's way. Not going to do it your way. We're not going to do it my way. We're not going to do it on our timetable. We're not going to do it with the people that we celebrate and we love and we think are attractive and gifted and should be center stage in the glory of the kingdom of God and the design that we have for his plans and how this is going to roll and what we expect him to do through this church or our ministries or the people we employ. We're not going to do this our way. We're going to do this God's way, and it will surprise us. I want to close with this little nugget of a promise that happens at the very end. Leah has a fourth son, and his name is Judah. Now, I love that name, Judah. It means praise God. We named our firstborn son Judah because of this son, Judah. And it turns out that Judah will be one of the most rotten of the 12 sons. No offense to my son Judah, but this Judah does things in Genesis that I can't really repeat in mixed company. He's a bad kid. And he has a very messy and sordid journey of faith if indeed he is born again. At the very end of Genesis, we're leaving this book this week, Israel, who is Jacob, is lying on his deathbed. He himself is no stranger of sin. And now he's got 12 boys before him who are no strangers of sin. And very oddly, as he's blessing each of his sons, he doesn't say this to his firstborn who would deserve the preeminent blessing. He reaches for his fourth son. And he says in Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. This is a man with a family of 15 people. Nobody's thinking about a kingdom. Nobody's thinking about a king. And he is saying, a king will come from my son Judah. 
Now hold your horses. We're going to have to wait 900 chapters. And we're going to meet a lot of people way worse than Judah before this king comes. But that makes his coming all the sweeter. King Jesus will be born in the line of Judah. He is a king who will live and die and rise from the dead. And when he ascends to the right hand of his father, he takes his father David's throne and he takes his forefathers Judah's scepter and he does not relinquish it. He becomes the long-awaited king of this new nation, the kingdom of Israel, which is you and I and all who repent of our sins and trust in Jesus. We waited for it, and it appeared to us, and it is beautiful. Let's pray together. God, you are so unlike us, and you do such unlikely things in such an unlikely way. To look upon Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to look upon Joseph and Mary... And to see your kingdom flourish surprises us. And it is beautiful. I pray that you keep doing your thing, your story, slowly and through sinners. And that we would marvel. In Jesus' name, amen.